1: Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Alright, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Uh, Mark Levesay is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself $20. bucks. can not say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I'm sitting here, and I am talking to... I'm going to say Chef Alan Burgo. Uh, Alan, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. So uh, could you do me a favor and kind of introduce yourself for everybody listening if they're not familiar with, with you? And uh, if they're not, after this episode, I'm sure they're going to have to dig deeper and find all your cool stuff you got going. But can you introduce yourself for everybody listening?
2: Yeah, sure. So my name's Alan Burgo. I spent a good 15 years in the restaurant industry. And as I started working into nicer and nicer restaurants, I started to see that a lot of the food that I was working with, like the, the most interesting stuff, and also like the most expensive stuff was all wild. And I started to teach myself about it. Eventually, my restaurants closed. By that time, I had been supplying my restaurants with wild food. So
3: I started to basically hunt mushrooms and plants and full-time,
2: which is a very abbreviated version of the story. Uh, I started a website about eight or nine years ago now. It's called foragerchef.com. That's how
3: most people know me from working with a lot of mushrooms, plants, and different types of game. Yeah.
1: Um, So, I mean, that's a pretty modest introduction, but uh, I'll kind of embellish on that a little bit, but there there's uh people like Hank Shaw have often said they're excited and curious to see how far you'll take the culinary experience with foraged items and uh it's pretty neat to see all the stuff you're always putting out especially on social media and because it's uh Instagram You know, not as many words all the time, but a beautiful picture and it really portrays and paints uh, a beautiful scenery, the way you're plating things and and coming up with uh, interesting new dishes and takes on things that, quite frankly, I've never even seen on some of that. So it'll be pretty cool to do something a little bit different tonight. And uh, you kind of suggested it as well to talk about butchering animals and uh, utilizing those different organs and pieces of meat can you kind of elaborate on that and and kind of where where that all came from versus uh you know just kind of talking about you know because most people don't really do that i guess i should say they they don't utilize the entire animal there's only certain cuts that they prefer and then seems like the rest of it they pretty much just grind up or they don't even utilize it all
3: yeah uh
2: so that's whole animal butchery. like this is how i was trained. Is what I was trained to do, uh, especially when I was at Heartland, where the menu changed every single day. The whole animal came in, you know, and I would be running the tasting menus. I had two different courses on the meat tasting menu, first and second courses. And we would almost all, all the time, we would have some, some kind of of rotating, awful, whatever it is, just working through the different parts of the animal we had. And we use just about everything that you legally can in Minnesota, so that's how I was trained, and that's how I cook and eat at home too.
1: so when you're uh, doing these cuts, like can you give some examples of some of the stuff that you uh, you utilize that normal normal folks or I guess people that aren't conditioned to uh... To actually even processing their own animal, some of the things that you utilize and, and kind of like how you would utilize it.
2: Yeah, well, I'll say too that butchering your own stuff at home, it also can help you be more creative just with the regular cuts. Uh, and this isn't going to be true. Some of this won't be true like venison because, so I was butchering sheep the other day. I actually had to butcher a pregnant ewe on Easter if you because of like birth problems. I felt like such a heathen yeah, a pregnant you on Easter, the timing was just terrible. But I took that opportunity to cut some new cuts that I've been wanting to do. So I cut some Barnsley chops, which are two T bones stuck together with the spine in the middle. It's a British cut. So butchery at home lets you do all kinds of different stuff that you won't get from a processor. It's a ton of work. But for me, it's totally worth it. As far as the offal. Um, I, I don't think you have to save every single thing every single time. Uh, I don't because, oh, maybe I still have a liver in the freezer uh, or maybe I have something else that I need to use up. What I do is kind of I have a couple different projects that I may be working on and I'll take a few different things one time, a few things next
3: time. Uh, but you can totally save everything, too. And some people really like to do that. I think one of the things that, uh, people usually throw away are that are really, really good. Like, cause you
2: have like gamey organ meat and then you Mm -hmm. have organ meat. I mean, at least to me, then you have organ meat. That's a
3: little bit easier to work with stuff. That's easier to work with is like heart and tongue. Those are really easy to work with, uh, testicles. I do. Like testicles,
2: I've, I've probably eaten the most testicles out of anyone that I know, <laughs> and
3: kidneys, especially. I love
2: those. So when you're
1: utilizing the kidney, or even the testicles for that matter, um, how important is the preparation before the actual, uh, the, the cooking of the meal for that piece of meat? I mean, it's got to be.
3: It's
2: super, it's super important. So I have a couple, I have a couple tricks. And this is, these are really, really useful, almost like no matter what kind of organ meat you're cooking. Tongues and hearts, I think, are so mild, personally, uh, that they don't need as much attention as something like testicles,
3: especially if it's from a game animal. lamb, goat, and sheep are pretty comparable to venison in that way. Um, The testicles, I soak them. One of my tricks is brining. So I will brine anything and everything.
2: Put it in some brine, just like how you would soak liver and milk. You can soak it in brine. Uh, I I will also like leach organ meats. Like if the liver is really strong, I'll cook a little piece up. I'll taste it. And if I think it's really strong, then I will actually just soak it in water with no salt for like a day or two. And then I'll change the water a few different times and then I'll brine it afterward. And that really tones down the flavor. Uh, I like to do that when I'm going to make liver dumplings and things like that. So brining and then after brining, smoking, like this is how to make the greatest testicles that you've ever had. Okay. You brine them and then you smoke them after the brine and they're so good. And you could even take them after they're cooked like that. And bread them and fry them and do rocky mountain oysters. They're fantastic.
1: So when you're doing brining is a big key. So when you're doing those testicles and and you're smoking them, is it like a long, low and slow type of smoke to where uh, it actually makes the meat a little bit more tender because the testicle itself is kind of tough, isn't it?
2: No, the testicle is really interesting. So it has the it has the texture of a hot dog. Like, by its nature, it has the texture of a hot dog, of, like, an emulsified sausage. That is the texture of a testicle.
1: That's it's not wobbly.
2: It's not jiggly like brains. It's, yeah, it's firm, and it tastes, like, it tastes like a hot dog. The texture is, like, that's, like, exactly what it is. Uh, <laughs> they just really like, be, they really like to be soaked and brined. And with the smoking, all you have to do is, after brining, you just cook them until they're 150 degrees Fahrenheit. You, you actually don't want to cook the testicles too long so you can dry out.
1: Okay. That's interesting. And w- when you're doing your brines, is it kind of uh, like a traditional, uh, you know, salt type of uh, brine, bring it to a boil and cool or what, what are you doing?
2: Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. Salt, some spices, whatever I have. I'm not usually going to put like pickling spice. I'll probably do something really mild or it might just be salt water. Like you don't. You can just dissolve salt in water and use that. And that will work in a pinch, like boiling a brine, with some herbs, and spices, and then onion, and a carrot, and a celery. That, that'll be great. Uh, and, and you'll taste it, you'll taste the difference. But just some salt water is totally fine,
3: too.
1: That's, yeah, that's interesting. I've never, uh, so out of uh, animals, you're pretty much using domestics for that uh, purpose for doing that? Or have you done it with wild game as well?
3: i've done it with deer too
1: yeah Yep. that's interesting that's uh that's definitely nothing i've ever even considered saving other than for proof of sex when cutting up processing up an animal field dressing or quartering to take it out of the field so (laughs) maybe no totally The, the key is
2: brining if you if you don't brine them it's it can be rough uh like
3: pork beef and pork are pretty mild. But venison, goat, and a a hog or you know, like a young sheep, they get pretty strong. So
1: (laughs) I'm kind of curious, are you pairing that like as an appetizer or are you making that into like an entree at that point?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a small, it's like one, it's like one slice, but when I smoke them. You just, I put that in front of people and okay, depending on what I think they can take, I will
3: tell them it's like a white kidney or a ham, or if they can really take it, then I'll tell them it's a testicle.
1: Interesting,
2: But they won't, they won't even, people won't even know. They'll think it's ham. After you brine it and smoke it, it's, it was a total game changer for me.
1: Wow. So if you're doing that and you're, you're turning that into uh Like, what would you accompany that with as far as a meal? I'm just trying to picture in my head, like, what's... Put it on a cheese plate.
2: Yeah. Part of your charcuterie board. (laughs) So
1: speaking of charcuterie boards, you do a little bit of uh, work with some different companies for making your own type of uh, dry... Is it dry aging type stuff?
2: Yeah. So, yeah. Umai Dry is this company from uh, the Twin Cities. It's family owned. And the guy that's basically running it now used to work in a a hotel that I interviewed to run so he's an industry guy and they just want to make they want people to be able to make charcuterie at home and it's it makes it so easy you you don't need a curing chamber you just vacuum seal some meat in this bag make your sausage mix put it in a bag vacuum seal it and then throw it in the fridge for
3: 30 days that's it
1: that's that's pretty cool cuz i know uh i know a few people that have tried it and ended up having or building their own type of uh, aging refrigerator for doing that. And the moisture content kind of got out of control and stuff didn't work right. And it molded. And so that's pretty interesting that you could just vacuum seal it in a bag and throw it in the freezer. Then for, yeah, sure. it's, it's
2: idiot proof because I've done stuff like that too. And I don't like wasting my time. You know, yeah. this, you, you can make any, any kind of charcuterie you want. Go on, Charlie pancetta, whole muscle cures, brassola uh, they have little things for salami,
3: anything. And they have bags that are big enough so you can dry age, like, you know, a whole subprime. Yeah.
1: So w- when you're uh making some charcuterie or something and you're going to put it in that bag, let's, for instance, say that you had some cuts or something left over from, a, a, you know, a deer, some venison from the year before or something like that. What What would you be doing with that to make different what cuts would you use and, and save for making sausages or whatever you're going to make and put in that bag and put it in the freezer or fr- refrigerator
2: okay so that's that's a great question because stuff out of the leg in venison is so lean that's great for making charcuterie because the salami is never going to get cooked so that that's a perfect place to use those roasts out of the leg and stuff. You want to trim those, uh, you know, you want to get, make sure to get the silver skin off them, like totally clean them all. That's a perfect place to use those, like the shoulders and stuff like that. I save those, cause that's like my favorite part of the deep I mean, besides the best, besides, you know, the traditional parts, cause it's, it's muscle that's hard working. It's got a lot of marbling in it and it's great for slow cooking you know, if you slow cook a venison roast, you get a piece of dust, you know, it's, it'll, it's okay, but it's not anything like slow roasting a shoulder or a shank or something like that. When you have that uh, intramuscular fat.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's so, actually, I've got a couple, uh, actual whole front shoulders that I froze all the way down to the joint of the shank. Um, and I've been thinking about trying to do something with those, but, uh, haven't really come up with anything special yet, but I want to try and utilize the entire leg in one in one dish.
2: Okay, well, here here is a fantastic one for you. It's so it is so good. It's uh, it's an African technique. Uh, I edited a cookbook for Molly, Okay, and this this guy Pierre Thoms is uh, he's a chef in the states now. Oh, but he's, he's actually from Senegal. So no, it's a, it's a Senegalese, it's from his book. And in the village, people take big chunks of meat and they'll bring it to like the village oven and they wrap it in paper and they cook it in this slow oven all day long. And then when they get home, everybody gets a little piece of meat wrapped in paper. So what you do, I do this with so many things. If I have a big cut and I don't know what to do with it, I season it up. I thought I season it up with whatever I want. I let it sit overnight, and then I wrap that thing in parchment in like two layers, and I cook it at two fifty for like, depending on how big it is, like five or six or seven hours. Yeah, and it's just it's falling off the bone. The it's, it's so good.
3: <laughs> the beauty
2: is that the parchment allows the meat inside to caramelize
3: from the heat but it still kind of steams it a little bit. So it's like steam roasting, but really, really low and slow.
1: Yeah. That sounds interesting. So when you talk about seasoning, you're the kind of guy that I don't see going and buying a bunch of commercial seasonings. Um, No. But more so you're creating your own seasonings. Can you kind of just talk about some of the things that you would kind of use on cuts of meat after you process them and, and what those plants are that you're finding and kind of how you do that, because I know you create some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, I like, I
2: really love working with ramp leaves. So I make a lot of different stuff with ramp leaves. There's a ramp spice in my book. That's really good. And I use that kind of just like all purpose, uh, like just an all purpose seasoning soups. Ribs, meat—I put—I put it on everything. Uh, but I really encourage people to kind of play around and experiment with stuff. With meat, I—I'm a sucker for like just old school, like Creole blackening spice. Like I grew up cooking in the early 2000s, and Paul Prudhomme was the man. We there was like two restaurants I worked at. Where we used that on everything. So a lot of times, I might be—I'm do- probably doing a variation on that, especially for meat. So it's going to be paprika based. And then I'll probably add some other stuff too, which could be, you know, dried herbs from the garden or I I actually put, I do one where I put a bunch of ramp leaves in that. But I may not use all wild stuff all the time. And I think that's totally fine. Another another good one that I do is a mix with wild Szechuan peppercorns, so prickly ash. And I do like a five peppercorn mix, but with prickly ash in it. And then I just will like crust a whole steak in that, only one side because it gets pretty intense. Uh, or like pork tenderloin is really, really good. So then you have a bunch of different peppercorns. And then you got the one wild element, which is the wild Szechuan peppercorns and all the heat together. It's like hot chilies, a little bit of uh, coriander, black pepper, white pepper, Szechuan peppercorns. And you get the hot, you get a little bit of numb with it. Super good.
1: That sounds interesting. So w- one more time, what was the plant that, uh, it, a prickly?
2: Prickly ash. Prickly Yeah, Xanthoxylum americana.
1: And where, where does that kind of grow? Like what, what environment would that be in if somebody's trying to seek it out? Is it fairly common or is it? Uh... Oh, it's like,
2: it's super aggressive. It's like a weed up here. I don't think you guys have it like down if you're in the South, uh, I know in the Midwest, it is absolutely everywhere.
1: That's interesting. I'm gonna have to look into that one a little bit more for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a small on.
2: shrub. It's That's- a it's a shrub grows into big colonies. Uh, they used to make like bitters out of it in like the Wild West. They'd have like prickly ash bitters date back to like the 1800s. Toothache tree is another thing that people call it, but it's literally a cousin of Szechuan peppercorns. They're both in the genus xanthosila Zanth-
1: it's interesting so it definitely has a little bit more heat than your standard peppercorn then
2: well there, there is actually no heat no it's heat. it makes your it makes your mouth go numb
1: interesting okay so yes heads, but heads, so, heads so in, in
2: chinese in chinese cooking you have uh mala and mala is like hot and numb combined and when you taste it when it hits your tongue your mouth starts like water. It's like this insane watering when you have spicy and the numbing of the peppercorns together. It's kind of like, it's like indescribable. It's super addictive.
1: (laughs) I've never heard of that either. If you like spicy
2: food, it's just like another like thing to put with spicy food. Oh, it's, it's crazy.
1: That's, that's interesting.
2: So super traditional.
1: I'm kind of curious, uh, like what you're doing. You talked about kidneys, how are you preparing the kidneys? What are you doing beforehand to, to prepare them and, and kind of just like walk me through a, a dish? Okay, so kidney,
2: kidneys are, this is why kidneys are awesome. People think when, you, when they imagine eating kidneys, they think kidney on toast or like you're going to eat something on a plate and it's just a kidney. That is not how I cook kidneys. I love all the old British recipes like steak and kidney pie. Or Lancashire hot pot. So the way the kidneys are used there, uh, I'll soak them overnight. I mean, they're a piss filter anyway. So I'll soak them. I'll soak them in water. I'll soak them in brine, whatever I want to do. And then what you do is you cut them into pieces. Like you cut them into like nuggets, right? Like you'll like quarter them or cut them into eighths or dice. And then for, okay, let's say you're going to make, I'm going to make steak
3: and kidney pie first I'm going to take some bacon and I'm going to cook that down and get the fat out. Then I'm going to add the kidneys. Then I'll probably take that out and brown the meat and then put the kidneys and the bacon back
2: in there. And then I'll add some other stuff. And at the end, they just kind of like mix in with everything else. And you can barely tell they're there, but they like, you cannot make steak and kidney pie without kidneys and Lancashire hot Pot should have it too. So it's like, They just kind of like melt into these rich, like thick, hearty stews. And it's, that's my favorite way to have them. I don't really love deviled kidneys. Uh, I like brined and smoked kidneys. Those are good. But cooking them in soups and stew, like the beautiful thing compared to liver, kidneys don't overcook, right? You can't take liver and cook it for two hours and have it taste good. That's going to be crap, right? Kidneys are different. You can cook kidneys in a stew in the crock pot, and they're going to be totally fine. They don't
1: care. So when when you're cooking them, and you say you can't overcook them, is it because the texture doesn't change at all either, or it just uh, how's that kind of come into play? Uh, I mean, I don't know
2: like the exact science of like why why it is, but liver is just going to get super dry and tough, right? And ki- kidneys don't for, for whatever reason, they, they're totally fine. They're like a little piece of stew meat.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Cause I've never, I've never experienced a kidney, so I can't, I can't even speak to oh the, the steak
2: and kidney pie with stew meat, bacon and little cut up kidneys. Oh man. Oh, it's so good. Really?
1: So good. Yeah. yeah. So like I've cooked liver and mostly the traditional way, kind of just slicing it in the, and doing it in the pan with onions and uh, mushrooms or something like that but never really got into any kind of experimentation so what's your take on like going going forth with the liver and doing something a little bit different is it kind of the same process you're soaking yeah just don't overcook it right
2: yeah i'll I'll probably soak it and one thing that's important to know like i'll probably take i'm not going to soak the whole liver okay so i'm going to cut the liver into slices And then I'm going to soak it and I'm going to soak it depending on the size of that thing. I'm going to soak it in probably a pretty large container, because if you put like a venison liver is reasonably sized, you know, if you put like that in a container where it's sitting really tight or it's in like a gallon bag, God forbid, with like three cups of milk or something, that's not going to do anything. So you got to make sure that there's enough water, you know, start with a gallon. You got to make sure there's enough water for those, you know, kind of think of them as like gamey solutes to disperse into. You got to give them somewhere to go. So the more liquid you soak your organ meats in, the more of that flavor is going to diffuse into the water for you to pour off.
1: That's interesting. I, I mean, it, it completely makes sense and it makes me want to try. Yeah, it. So, I, But, so, sure but I true.
3: cut it into slices. You cut it into slices
2: and it makes it that even faster because you're not soaking the whole liver. So,
1: so when you cut you it go. in slices, are you like most likely just waiting a day instead of, like you said before, kind of letting it soak? Yeah, I'll, I'll, just,
2: I'll just wait a day and I'll, I'll cover it in milk. Milk and liver is a tried and true, you know, really classic combo.
1: What's kind so, of like, have you made a, a dish that it sticks out or stands out more than anything else that you've done with like the liver?
3: Oh, yeah. Liver ravioli
2: with caramelized onions and mushrooms.
1: Are you putting liver?
2: Good parmesan.
1: Are you putting liver inside of the ravioli then, or yeah, you'll make it into
2: a puree. You're not going to use a lot of liver like that, but it's really good.
1: So when you're doing the puree and and you're putting it in there, I'm just kind of curious: is are there other foraged items or anything, or some type of uh, green? Like, would you put in, um, for instance, let's say nettles or something in with that? And put it into the no. pasta?
2: No, no, no. So, well, you could make green ones, but it'd be much cooler to have them be brown uh, and then have some green nettles fresh tossed with the ravioli. Okay. You know, so the, the liver like, basically think put, you're putting liver mousse in ravioli, right? And then you just pick some little dance partners to go with it. Nice. Nettles, nettles would be perfectly fine. Yeah. So with mushrooms and brown butter and birch syrup.
1: <laughs> so when you say that, what kind of mushrooms would you be putting in there? Is it just completely seasonal at the time or would it be Whatever. Uh, chanterelles
2: would be nice because they'd give you a pop of color.
1: Very nice. So do you guys have let's kind of go into that real quick cuz I'm curious. You were I remember last year or last summer you posted something that you finally found a certain type of chanterelle that uh you hadn't ever really found before. Was it like a cinnamon one or something? Cuz normally you find goldens or what was the what was the sought after? Uh, the,
2: my, the, the white chanterelles that I was picking a few years ago finally got published in an uh, academic journal.
1: Okay, so you're saying that you knew they were chanterelles, but at the time it wasn't actually oh, yeah. published. Yet. We were trying
2: to figure out if they, they I'm not a scientist, the, the mycologists were trying to figure out if the white chanterelles that I picked were a separate species or if they were like an atypical mutation. And it turns out that they were an atypical mutation. So they're basically golden chanterelles. They were basically an albino version of chanterelles phosmatis, which is our local chanterelle here. And it's the best chanterelle in the world. And it would just grow completely white with maybe kind of like a little yellow on the top. And basically what it is, it's not a separate species, but that is a characteristic that you will see in all kinds of chanterelles around the world so they had pictures of all these different species with their like albino versions next to the real version it was so cool i had never i'd never thought that i never knew that i had never heard of that uh, i've heard of different albino mushrooms though and it makes a lot of sense because i get lobster mushrooms that are albino i have friends on the west coast that have picked albino black trumpets and it seems like the albino this atypical mutation basically makes the flavor a little bit more mild and maybe gives them a little bit more of a delicate texture in the case of the lobsters. Uh, but it kind of makes them more, more subtle. Uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. That's what that was.
1: That completely blows my mind though. I'd never even, I never knew that a mutation in mushrooms, I understand like, uh, what do they call uh when, when a lobster mushroom actually happens, it's another mushroom that gets infected with a, uh, I'm the to hypomyces. Me. Yeah, hypomyces, but I didn't know that. So is it the hypomyces getting infected then? Or uh mutating, I guess I should say, that's turning it into uh an albino.
3: I don't know. That's it's like hypomyces. they're like mutants. That's... Yeah, there's
1: mutants. <laughs> you just blew my mind with that one because I've never heard of albino mushrooms. Yep. Yeah. So when you're I mean, it's gotta be fairly common then, right? Like because you're telling me all these different varieties that you've picked.
3: It's, it's not
2: common, uh, but there are a couple places. I think I probably know like four people in
3: Minnesota that have picked white like albino shams.
1: That's interesting.
3: Yeah. It's not common, but there people, people found them, you
1: know? Wow. Um, so I guess we probably transitioned back into the the butchering process. If somebody's wanting to kind of start doing that themselves, because I, I just know so many, especially hunters, they don't, even, they don't even process their own meat as far as breaking it, the animal down or utilizing the cuts. It's pretty much whatever the butcher gives them. Is there any kind of advice that you would give somebody if they're wanting to start out or, or start doing that?
3: I mean, deer is really easy. I mean, then I,
2: I use a, a sawzall. But all you're doing is basically cutting shanks off. It's so easy. Cut the shanks off, cut them into whatever sections you want. Oh, I cut ham steaks last year that were pretty fun. Venison ham steaks. Basically, you want to have a friend that's got a tripod, if you want to butcher yourself, or some kind of setup. I mean, I know plenty of people that, have, that do perfectly fine cutting deer up on
3: cardboard in the garage. And I've done that, you know, so many times too. Uh, if they want to be more creative with it, I,
2: I would say there's, there's a number of things on my, on my site that are pretty helpful. Uh, Hank, of course, you know, has like all kinds of stuff. I kind of only focus on more kind of off the beaten path things with venison or things that I just really, really like. Uh, but Hank's Hank's a fantastic resource uh, as well.
1: So, just to clarify, uh, Ellen's talking about Hank Shaw. So, um, in case anybody's wondering who who Hank is, um, but I'm kind of curious though. I mean, like when when I do it, I I started quartering up deer. Now, I don't I don't do it any other way. I don't hang the whole deer anymore because it's just more convenient, especially if I take it earlier in the season. I'm able to put the entire deer in a cooler with uh, some ice underneath it and maybe some uh, ice packs or something on top of it, just because I don't want the water running through it, even though I don't, according to a lot of people I've talked to, it doesn't actually hurt it, but I feel like it uh, changes the meat a little bit. Uh, What would you think on something like that to where, you know, you got water running through the meat?
3: Okay, hold on. Refresh me here. Why is there
1: water running through the meat? If you put ice on top of it in a cooler. Oh, yeah. No, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I mean, cold packs or something
3: is fine. Uh, but, I mean, if you got to take it and it's... If you have to butcher it and it's, like, too warm to hang it, then just cut it up and be done with it. Or hopefully figure out a way to leave some
2: of the cuts in it, in the fridge, like, on a cookie sheet overnight uh i i have a 20 cubic foot fridge in my garage and a 40 cubic foot freezer so i'm kind of spoiled Um, (laughs) but you you know ideally you want the meat to dry out a little bit it's just going to taste better
1: yeah so the way i actually do it now is i'll put ice in the bottom of the cooler but have uh i have a tray that i put on top of the ice and then put the meat on that so it's Letting the blood actually drain out of it, and not letting the water, and it's got legs on it. um so Yeah, yeah. Whatever works,
2: as long as the meat's not in the bathtub. Yeah,
1: yeah. But <laughs> well, so that's the way I do it now, and and then I just take the quarters and work with them as I can, and uh, break them down into individual muscle groups and start cooking with them. um You know, or vacuum seal it and and put it in the freezer. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like. What's your favorite cut to work with? On, on save Venison
3: oh.
0: A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life.
2: Yeah baby, 68
0: Western. Oh, will build there, baby right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. For in. The- Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp
3: Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Shoulder or the neck?
1: Yeah. What, What are you doing with the neck then?
3: With the neck, I usually roll them and slow cook them and then chill them down, slice them,
2: into perfect pinwheels. And then I'll gent- gently reheat them on both sides until they're like golden brown. That is like, that's a good eating right there. That is like one of my favorite cuts on whole deer.
1: So when when you're rolling it out, are, are you just straight up rolling it up and cooking it? Or are you pounding it out or tenderizing it and then? I'll, yeah,
2: absolutely. I'll, I'll give it a good pound. I'll take, I usually take the neck off, depending on the size. I think there's been only one deer that I butchered where the neck was so big, I had to cut it into two pieces,
3: but most of the time I'll take it, I'll take it off, like just the whole, you know, stripe of the neck all around the neck. I'll skin it
2: and take it off in one piece and then I'll pound it uh, or maybe cut it in half and make two smaller ones.
1: So you're going for more like a, like a, traditional roulade, or would it be uh, yeah you could you could
2: call it a roulade, you could call it a roulada yeah
1: rouladen roll it up <laughs> depending on where you're at, right um, yeah but so so when you're rolling it up, what are you I mean I'm just kind of curious because the way your mind works versus mine it's more or less i I look at a cookbook and try and come up with something so I mean what are you putting in there like other meats or different cuts of the animal um, just as as little as possible. So when you say, I'm just like, are you putting greens in there, making some type of cream, or realistically just... No. Okay, so I'm
2: going gonna, I'm gonna to pound the deer neck into a rectangle. I'm going to season it all over with salt and pepper. I'm going to put some fresh herbs, maybe like parsley, a little bit of thyme. Uh, if I, if I want to get creative, and that, and that could be just fine, just like herbs, and roll it up, and tie it, and go that could be fine. You, you can sure stuff it with things too. I've, I've done some with duck
3: cell. I, I think, yeah. Yeah. No, I, d- I did a nice venison neck with totally stuck with duck cell and, and that's good, but there's nothing wrong with just putting some nice herbs on it and salt and
2: pepper and rolling it up. Uh, a little bit of breadcrumbs is really nice or like another classic, thing is just finely minced garlic and parsley. That's that's legit, and then just roll it up. If you put too see if you you put too much stuff in it, people have a tendency to try to put too much stuff in their stuffings and (laughs) in roulades and things like that. So a really good one to start out with. You could put like a really thin slice of prosciutto or a thin slice of ham. That that you could do. Uh, But if you start putting like oh. Is cheese and mushrooms and spinach. No, get out of here with that. That's not, no, don't do that. You just want as little as possible and it's going to make it so it's harder for the stuff to fall out. Don't put vegetables inside of meat rolls. I I can't stand that. (laughs) Cook the vegetables and make them taste really nice and put them on the side. Because if you cook that venison neck in the oven for four hours, then you got to eat spinach in the center that is like ghost spinach. You know, but it was, it was ancient spinach.
1: Stuff that's falling apart. Yeah. That's totally makes sense. Um, you know, it's really clean, keep it, keep it clean and keep it simple. And then you're not detracting from the meat either. You're just enhancing it. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good process there. Um, cause you mentioned the whole thing about like, uh, Putting in some type of real thin meat or something. Is there any type of deli meats or anything that you've ever made out of venison that you liked or turned out really good?
2: Oh, absolutely. I just made some uh, brisola, prickly ash brisola, and I actually used, I think I used uh, top sirloin. Um, Oh, no, not the top sirloin,
3: uh, top round. And that that worked really, really well. Uh, Also, Bill Tongue out of the top round.
1: So you was, take it and air dry it then?
2: Yes, the built-on. The, you cut it into like rectangles. And then they're like one-inch rectangles. And you coat them with crushed coriander and black pepper. And then I vacuum seal. And I put all these little squares into the fridge. And then they dry. And then basically you have like jerky
3: planks. And you cut the jerky fresh off of the plank of Biltong. it's so good, okay, because a lot
2: of times jerky <laughs> can be like eating tree bark, you know correct and and I, and I like and I like it like that uh, this is just a different version, and it's really cool uh but the brasolos flavored that I did is flavored with prickly ash that was really fun. I did some venison salami, oh, I did a venison dried venison chorizo uh with wild fennel seed that was out of this world uh, that was really really good so are and i do add i do add pork to my my venison meat? is it uh when
1: when you do that then is it uh, like a certain ratio or is it uh or a certain cut of uh pork is it pork fat or is
2: it uh i mean it could honestly it can be any pork fat some recipes will say you can only use back fat i mean just make sure you got some decent looking chunks, and it's not like all oh, super stringy or something.
1: Is the leaf- back
2: fat back fat is nice because it is easy to dice. And it's e- kind of easy to work with. It's a nice, convenient shape. Uh, but really, like any any fat will work in a pinch.
1: Is uh, leaf fat the back fat, or is that a different... No,
3: le- leaf lard would be from the kidneys.
1: Okay, from the kidneys. So uh,
3: this is also good. You you. You can use that
1: too. Yeah. Man, that sounds good too. <laughs> There's so much out there that you can do. Um, so I kind of, I'm curious about the biltong though. When you said that you cut it up into squares, um, how how thick were these squares? About one inch. So about one inch and then um, how big, I mean, like six inches or five inches or whatever the piece is in a rectangle.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I got a I got a whole video on my YouTube too.
2: Just that's super. It's super easy. You just cut it. You cut it into chunks, thick chunks, and then rub it with salt, uh, the mixture, curing salt mixture, and then coat it with black pepper and coriander. And that's I vacuum seal it. Then I take it out of the vacuum seal. The vacuum seal with the charcuterie is super super useful. Uh, if you let's say you're going to make a whole muscle cure and you don't vacuum seal it when you put the Instacure number two on you. Most of the time I get like a gray ring around the meat. When you vacuum seal it, it forces the cure into the meat. So you get a perfect, even cure. It looks, it looks professional. You know, that's the best I can say.
1: Yeah, no, that's cause I've experienced the gray ring around meat too. So that's
2: yeah. You vacuum seal it with the cure, leave it in there for like a week. Or two weeks, depending on the size of the cut, and that that'll cure that. Uh,
1: wow! Yeah, that's yep. And, then, and, and you'll, then you'll be you'll be making fantastic shark So when you when you vacuum seal it though, are you vacuum sealing it in the bag, the dry bag that dries it out, or are you just using no? Nope, regular... This at first, yeah. you got to pen you got to penetrate
2: it with the cure. So you're going to use you don't want it to dry out. So you're going to use a regular vacuum bag, and then you can let it sit for however long you want. Like two weeks is like two weeks is usually pretty standard, but you could probably get away with less uh with the biltong and smaller cuts. Uh, you probably do like four or five days, then take them out, and then I seal them in the Umai
3: bag and then put them in the fridge and forget about them for set a reminder for the Biltong's really quick. That's
2: I want to say that was like maybe a little bit less than 2 weeks. Bigger muscle gears, at least like
3: 6 weeks. Okay. 4 to 6 weeks.
1: That's interesting. That's neat. I like biltong. Never knew you that's could so make good. it in your refrigerator. <laughs> so that's uh that's definitely a cut. I'm I'm going to have to try and play around with a little bit more for sure. Um what kind of wild stuff other than uh the the Szechuan peppercorns and stuff like that, would you be uh, looking forward to add for seasonings and and stuff like that for cuts of meat like that that you're going to cure?
3: Seeds, wild seeds. So
2: fennel is awesome. I wild fennel doesn't grow near me, but I love wild fennel so much. I ordered from this lady on Etsy, right? Uh, Szechuan peppercorns, we went over. I mean, your dried oleums and stuff like that, those are really good. Juniper cedar cones.
3: Okay, cedar cones are like juniper, but they don't have thorns like some shrubs. That's interesting.
1: Uh, so do you uh, grind? Like when you take the juniper, are you drying it and grinding it into a powder? The, the,
2: cedar, the cedar cones, I, well, juniper berries, those you can just grind up. And those are fantastic. You know, the uh, cedar cones; those I use fresh when they're green, and I grind them up into like a paste. And then I'll, I'll put that like maybe I'll add some black pepper, some salt, um, make that garlic, make that into a paste, rub some meat with that, vacuum seal it for a week. There's some curing salt in there. Take it out after a week, and then it's ready to go into the dry, into uh, into the bag and dry age. But yeah, cedar cones are really good at game too. That's a
1: yeah. I never heard of yeah, you great, cedar green cones
2: green cedar cones when when they are young and tender. So like if you can smush it between your finger, uh like uh, it should be eastern white cedar is okay. the the one that people use for ornamentals all over. Yeah. At, at least around here, yeah, is a great it's a great seasoning.
1: That's
3: interesting. Yeah, the best I think the best thing that I make with it, okay, you take garlic cloves and crushed red pepper and rosemary and green cedar cones
2: and you mince it all together and you put it into a jar and cover it with olive oil and you just like let that sit in the fridge for a couple days or you can let it sit longer and then you make a pan of like really really good roasted or fried potatoes and when the potatoes are, like, golden, brown, like, crispy, like, ting, 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 with skins, like, like a crackling, then you take a spoonful of that mixture and you toss the potato, the hot, red hot potatoes in that aromatic mixture real quick off the heat and then put them right into a serving dish. And it's, like, the most aromatic, like, uh, it's so good. So, man, that sounds great. I'm
1: trying to picture it's, my it head is. Uh, because you could, I can, I can. In my head right now, smell the the cedar and some of the other things. But what is it? What kind of taste does the cedar impart? Is it what you would think like when you smell it? Or... It tastes like
2: it tastes like juniper. It's it tastes similar to juniper.
1: Okay, that's an interesting profile for sure. But I imagine that would be good on potatoes. <laughs> like you said, that would be good. Um, so one of the things that I've seen that I've always kind of wanted to ask you about is uh ketchups and some of the different things you've experimented with there and some
3: really really old literature that i know you were digging into um about ketchups ketchups i mean yeah you can make ketchup out of everything i worked for a chef who
2: used to serve peach ketchup with french fries (laughs) i mean I, i i wouldn't do that but he did uh ketchup catsup i mean the same thing basically you know before ketchup was made from tomatoes it was made from all kinds of different things and tomatoes were like tomatoes are a new world crop right so the ketchups are like the older sauces and they could be made from okay you got ketchup made from green walnuts uh ketchup made from mushrooms of course ketchup made from black walnut leaves uh ketchup made from fruit you know maybe that's where people got the idea to make tomato ketchup because tomatoes are a fruit Uh, all kinds of stuff
1: i just found it interesting and I, i think there was one you made where it was like a liver ketchup or something
2: yes yes oh that's oh that's a yeah that was a really old one that was really really fun that was such a cool thing to do with liver uh You take the liver and you basically like boil it with salt and water and spices, and then you clarify the finished. You you add a lot of salt, so it's like you know fifteen percent like soy sauce, and then you clarify the finished mixture with uh, egg white like you would a consommé, and then you decant the finished thing. It's like crystal clear. orange it's beautiful and you use it like you would soy sauce or you dash it on meat or something like that Yeah, it's it was really interesting
1: what kind of plate yeah no that's like it that's a, that's a fascinating thing to do with, with liver yeah because that was one of the things that just stuck out in my head and since we were talking about liver i kind of wanted to get your take on that and uh and and i mean so it pretty much turned into a soy sauce though is that kind of the
2: well, it's not soy sauce right. like it's it's clear it it's in the same vein you know
3: if you put it into a bowl and then like add a little bit of good tasting oil or something, it would be great to dip something in uh,
2: or you could add add some to a bowl of rice or you know some noodles or something like that it, it's a that one I'm probably not going to
3: like season like a soup with or something it's cause it was kind of precious, you know, yeah. like it didn't make like a huge jar. Um, uh, but it was, it was really cool. That's interesting.
1: And when I just remember when you were doing that, I was like, man, that's something I have never heard of. And I remember you were digging, obviously through some really, really old books to try and find some of that stuff. So it's kind of, yeah, I got a lot see. of those. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'm just kind of, you've mentioned some things and you talked about your book and all that kind of stuff. So can you kind of tell everybody, uh, but before you do that, um, you've got a show on taste made right now. Can you kind of talk about that? Um, I talked to you once before and you kind of told me about filming, but now that that's wrapped up, um, you want to talk about the, you know, your show and and where the people can find it and then uh, go into your book and, flora and all that good stuff
3: yeah sure
2: so there's my website that's where most people know me from that's foragerchef.com i'm pretty active on instagram that's at foragerchef and my book the forager chef's book of flora you can get wherever good books are sold that's through chelsea green
1: you got to talk about your show man like you did oh even, yeah. yeah sorry
2: so the t- yeah the Tate's Made show so yeah, that I made that with. a I'm kind of scatterbrain here. It's been a long day. I did. I made that in 2020 with my friend who is a James Beard Award-winning filmmaker. His name's Jesse Ressler. and that is streaming on TasteMade. So I think they they had to do a different formatting with some of the episodes, but that's on TasteMade right now. Uh, I just went to the I went to the search bar and then I just went to series and typed in the word field and it comes right up the name the new name is field forest feast uh but yeah it's it's nominated for a james beard award this year so i'm super excited i didn't think that we would have a chance because we filmed it in 2020 so i thought the time had passed um then there's another show that i can't tell you a ton about, but it should be coming out in like a month or two. We just finished doing
3: recording, and that's me out in the wilderness, like basically alone by myself, (laughs) and it it gets kind of crazy. That's cool, though. Looking forward to that. It's
1: always good talking to you, and uh, it seems like every time I do, my mind is blown, and uh, it's almost too much to process, because it's my head's reeling with so many good things and and wanting to get out and experiment and try all these things so i always appreciate uh our conversations and and talking to you and uh thank you so much for coming on yeah no problem Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenge podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.